Well, uh, if you have attended this church for any length of time, you know that I am a super nerd. I love all things Star Wars and um, Marvel movies, everything like that. Like, see, Jeff, pa- Jeff Frazier, our lead pastor, he has C.S. Lewis quotes that he throws into his sermons. I have Marvel movies and Star Wars things. So, and I'm grateful for the way that you indulge me in my super nerdiness. But a couple years ago, I made the leap from part-time nerd to way too much nerd. Okay, because I went to Comic-Con. How many of y'all even know what Comic-Con is? Okay, that's good. That that makes me feel slightly better about my ridiculous behavior. But I went to, it's called C2E2, Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo. So I got a picture here from what this place is like. So that that is me dressed as Fat Thor, because that's the only superhero I can really legitimately pull off. And uh, you'll notice that next to me, I'm stood next to a guy who's gone to the lengths of creating this whole war machine armor. You, some of you are thinking Iron Man, it's not, it's war machine. But they, these guys go all out on creating these fantastic costumes. And the whole day is spent in this auditorium that's filled with uh, actors and actresses from different movies and TV shows. There's comic books that you can buy. There's artists that you can meet with who've done them. There's pop culture things. This last one that I went to had a giant inflatable cookie monster. So I even took my son Jonathan along. It was a great time. Uh, But this whole thing, this whole weekend is meant to be, as it says, it's an expo, is a kind of proclaiming of what all of the people who come here love, right? Everybody who goes to a Comic-Con is announcing to the world, we love superheroes, we love comic books, we love all of this pop culture stuff. You can't go within even like a five-mile radius of the McCormick Center without seeing like a random Spider-Man walking down the street. And so the question I'm going to have for us this morning as we jump back into Colossians is, what is our life an expo of? Like as we think about the things that our life proclaims, when people walk past us in the street, what do they see that we love? What do they see when they engage with us and they sit with us and they eat with us and they live their lives beside us? Is our life an expo of something? And if so, what? Because I think Colossians is going to try and steer us in the direction of saying that your life is intended to be an expo. It's intended to be a proclamation of Christ. At the start of chapter 1, Stetson has just already read to us one of the greatest pieces of scripture that you'll ever come across. This hymn, this Ellie Creed that the Ellie Church sang in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 that proclaims these incredible things about who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him and for him. And as he mentioned, we're going to keep coming back to that. And I would, I would challenge you to, to memorize those few verses, 15 through 20, to let your heart sit on who it is that we're reading about, who it is that we're coming to every Sunday in these seats. But what Paul wants to do now is to take this amazing vision, this picture of Jesus that he's painted and say, now what for you? What does that mean for you? If Jesus is glorious and gracious, then that means that your life has a glorious and gracious purpose to proclaim Christ. The Christian life has a glorious purpose, and it's to proclaim Christ. It's to be clear about who he really is and to share the good news of who he is and what he's done with all of creation, to direct people's attention, their gaze towards him. And to live for anything else is to live for a lesser purpose. It's to live for things that fade and falter. And in a world where we so often find ourselves longing for a a meaningful purpose, a true purpose, don't we want to come to the one who can offer us a glorious purpose? Come to the one who can give definition and meaning to everything that we are, 
So that's what I want to try and get our hearts and our minds on today is I want to talk about the worthiness of Christ to be proclaimed and the joy that you and I have in being invited into this journey of proclaiming him. And then we're going to do that is we're going to read through Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. And we're going to see three things that we are given. We are given a ministry with Christ. We are given a mystery of Christ. And we're given a maturity in Christ. And the first of those things is a ministry with Christ. A ministry with Christ. Now, I was, I was chatting with someone in the lobby when we were coming in about my feelings of the weather here in Illinois lately. It's up and down, right? Everybody's laughing because we all know it. It's like a, it's an emotional distress every spring to be like, oh, oh, it's finally spring. No, no, it's not. It's more snow. Okay, fine. And even now, I'm looking out the window and it's raining. And I, I've realized something about myself, that I used to be a glass half full kind of person. And now I'm a glass half empty kind of person. How many of you would say you're a glass half full kind of person? That's a pretty good number in the size of this. Now we're going to do the real test. Who is a glass half empty person? Thank you for being honest. Me too. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's age, circumstance, whatever. But I've, I've found myself lately kind of being more grumpy than I am rejoicing. But Paul in Colossians, he's a real challenge for those of us who are half empty because he's not just a glass half full kind of person. Paul is a glasses overflowing kind of person. He's like the kind of person that you don't want to run into at church because he's always going to be in a great mood about what Jesus is doing in his life, even when he's in prison. Let me read you what he says in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul's writing this letter to this church in Colossae and as as kind of a reminder, this is a really small church, probably similar size to us, about 100 people. And they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ, to be with Christ. So Paul writes in this letter from prison. Paul has been put in prison because of his proclamation of Christ, because of what he's saying about Christ. And right there in a prison cell, he writes this astounding statement. I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. He doesn't just tolerate his sufferings. He doesn't even endure his sufferings. He rejoices in his sufferings. Now, just to give you a picture of this, because it wasn't just a prison cell that made up of Paul's sufferings. Let me give you a list of some of the things that the Apostle Paul went through in his life. When he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, he's talking about the fact that he has been shipwrecked, that on one occasion he was stoned and presumed dead in Acts 14. You'll find that he was... the the Jewish leaders were so offended by his message that they stoned him and they thought they'd actually killed him. He was beaten many times. He received lashes from authorities. He went through hunger and weariness and sleeplessness. In 2 Corinthians, he just has this whole list of things that he went through. So when the apostle Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, he's not just talking about a bad weekend or an unpleasant prison cell. He's talking about a long ministry of moments which he has suffered and struggled because of what he said about Jesus. And again, what he says is that he rejoices in that. Doesn't that fill you with this curiosity? What what could possibly have happened to Paul that would make this man honestly say, I rejoice in my sufferings? It's a ministry with Christ. Paul knows that to walk beside this Jesus to be next to Jesus as he transforms people's lives, as he sees the church grow and people who were once dead come to life, people who are broken be made whole, 
that brings a joy to Paul that he can't find anywhere else. A ministry with Christ will provide you with deep joy, even in the midst of sufferings, because it will draw you into deeper relationship with Christ himself. It will make you more like him. Now, verse 24 has this weird phrase. It says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what I want to be clear about here, Paul isn't saying that there is something lacking about Jesus and himself that Paul has to do some extra work for. It's not like Paul is saying, well, Jesus has got us really close to the finish line, and now I'm going to suffer and I'm going to struggle because I've got to make sure that I get over the finish line. Jesus is completely enough for salvation, for life, for every possible conceivable dimension of your life jesus is enough so what is paul saying let me read to you a different translation that i think will help us out and this is an encouragement to you if you ever read in your bible and you're struggling to understand what you've just read and you're like i don't what's he meaning here i'd encourage you try a different translation and go through a couple sometimes it can help you to get a better lens on what's being said and so in, in the new living translation this is what we're told i'm glad when i suffer for you in my body for i am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Helps out a little bit, doesn't it? Because what Paul is saying is not, Jesus lacked and I've got to make up the excess. He's saying, what Jesus did was incredible. What's lacking is that I'm not like him. He is so much more loving and perfect and just than I am. And I want to participate in the same kind of life as Christ so that I can become like him. Kevin, you make me feel so good every Sunday. That's what Christ desires for all of us, is to not simply affirm him in our minds and look to him as this ideal, but to share in the same life as him. So we can know the riches of being loved by him, of walking beside him as king. Paul considers it a joy to have this opportunity to love the church the same way that Jesus did. Because Jesus suffered for the church, didn't he? Jesus' whole life was a, a long journey, just like Paul, of pouring himself out for the people and suffering because of it. Paul knows, just as Jesus did, that true love comes at a cost. True, authentic love comes at a cost. Paul doesn't just have love for the church when it's going really well for him. He doesn't just love Christ's ministry when it's working out great for him. Paul loves walking beside Christ and being in ministry with Christ when it's hard, when it's painful, when it costs him. Because every time he goes through that, he knows this is what my Lord went through. This is what Jesus did for me. And now I get to do it for someone else. I get to do it for this small group of believers in Colossae who need to be reminded of a Savior that loves them and suffered for them and poured himself out for them. Paul says this to the church in Philippi in another one of his letters. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul treasures this opportunity to be like Christ so much, that he says everything else in my life is not even worth comparing to it. What he says is I count everything else as rubbish. Now, what you may not know is that the Greek word that gets translated as rubbish is the Greek word scubalon. Bible translators can't even bring themselves to write what that really meant. 
because Paul was so emphatic about the difference between Jesus and everything else. There is Jesus and then there is garbage, hot garbage. To know him, to walk with him, to be with him, to be by his side is so much more beautiful and life-giving than anything else that I could ever experience. And friends, that's what God desires for you, is to meet him in such a way that every detail of your life becomes pale and empty in comparison to the knowledge of being loved by him, of being chosen by him, of being purposed by him. Paul's not saying his sufferings feel good. He's not saying I have some weird love for pain, like I just love to be in prison cells. He is saying I'm rejoicing despite the hard things because even as those hard things continue, so does Christ's love for me. And so does Christ's love for his church. Your sufferings are an opportunity to know the one who holds all things together. For that to be more than just a verse that you read in Colossians, but to experience. And don't you long that? I know in this church, I know the stories of many of you who have suffered. You've suffered in so many different ways. And I want you to know Christ is not blind to your sufferings. He's not ignorant of your sufferings. Rather, he wants to meet you in them. And he wants to show you that they cannot rob you of what he is offering you. The next thing that Paul tells us is a mystery of Christ. A mystery of Christ. So to help us understand this, we're going to play a little game. I always love interactive Sundays at church. So I'm going to show you a picture of a mystery. And I want you to try and help me figure out what it is. Okay, I'm, You don't really help me. I know. Spoiler alert. But you don't. So we're going to find out together. So tell me, what is this picture? Okay, that was too easy. Dandelion, you're right. That was a dandelion at a ridiculous magnification. Okay, let's see if we can up the ante. What's this? It's not fungi, but that's a good guess. You'll, I think you'll be surprised by what this one is. No, it's not a tongue. That would be gross, Mike. <laughs> it is seeds on a pepper. I know, that's kind of satisfying, isn't it, to discover? Okay, one more mystery here. What's this one? I thought it was an orange. It is not an orange. It's a, did I hear whispers of a carrot? Who says carrot? It is carrots. Isn't it interesting that how, how difficult that gets at a certain magnification? When you're so close to it, you don't see what it is. But when you zoom out and you get the whole scope of the picture, it becomes, oh, of course I knew what that was. It's obvious what that was. Paul wants to help us understand that when Christ came, it's like God zoomed us all out and said, do you see my plan? Do you see the mystery, what I've been working for all these generations, what I've been bringing about in my son, Jesus? Here's what he says in Colossians 1, 26 to 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's two questions that we really need to ask when we read this. It's first of all, what is the mystery and what does it mean for us? What's the mystery that Paul's talking about and what does it mean for us? The mystery that Paul is talking about is Christ himself. It's this plan of redemption. It's the word of God. It's everything that God has been doing throughout human history to bring about restoration and healing for the world. Now, the Jews knew this story pretty well. They have an entire Old Testament of these mysterious things that were pointing towards something, but they didn't have the fullness of them. 
They had temples. They had sacrifices. They had all kinds of rituals that the Jewish people knew pointed towards some aspect of who God was. And what Paul is seeing to the Jewish believers is this mystery that you have been searching for, it's finally had its answer in Jesus. He's what all of these different things were pointing towards. But it's not just the Jewish believers because Colossae was a town full of Gentiles. So there's a lot of people in that town that probably weren't familiar with all of this religious, spiritual history that the Jewish people were. And Paul wants to say to them, actually, no, there's a mystery in your heart too. And Jesus is that answer. Because Jesus isn't just the answer to some religious, spiritual mystery that's been going on with the Jewish people. He's the answer to the mystery in our own hearts that says, how will everything be put right? The longing of every human heart that sees that this world is broken and says, how can this be set right? And God answers that question in Christ. God comes to us in Christ and says, here is the riches of the glory of my blessing, is my son, and he has come to set all things right, to unite all things in himself. If you want to have a purpose that's glorious and gracious, then you've got to come to the one who is glorious and gracious. You've got to come to the answer of this mystery in your own heart, this longing in your own heart. And it's Jesus, the hope of glory. Such a great phrase that Paul uses there. He says that the the answer to the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What he's saying there is that the hope of glory isn't you at work in you. The hope of glory isn't Christ at work out there in someone else's life. It's Christ in you. And we fall into those two categories so often, don't we? We think my whole spiritual life, the whole every dimension of my life, it's, it's on my own shoulders to figure it out, to get it right. I've got to work enough. I've got to be enough. I've got to do enough. Or we fall into this other camp over where we say, well, it's the hope of glory is Christ at work out there. Maybe if he just fixes this group of people over here, these guys that keep saying this stuff, they really are the problem with society. Let's just, let's get Christ to work on those guys. Or maybe it's this crowd over here or this crowd over here and we just pass it around saying, Christ, work out there. But what Paul says is he takes both of those things down and says, it's not on your shoulders and it's not out there. It's Christ in here. It's Christ in you, in your heart, transforming your heart, letting his image be formed in you, this one who is the image of the invisible God, letting him form that same image in your heart so that the world would see. Some of you are still trying to work out this mystery in your own life, still trying to do more, get control, tidy up, work on yourself. And I just want to remind you of the words of Jesus who says, come all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. The answer to the mystery is not something that we should try and tick off so that we can then go do more work, so we can cease from it. God has answered this question for us so that we would stop striving to fix everything by ourselves. The most basic truth of the Christian life is that God has called us to come and to kneel quietly and surrender before him and say, God, we confess that we cannot get it right apart from you. That we have grown weary and tired and you can bring us rest. That's where all of Christianity begins. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, another fantastic letter of Paul reminds us of that very truth when it says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In who do we have the redemption of sins? In him. In who do we have the ceasing of our striving and our efforts? In him. Not in the next president, not in the next economic upturn, not in the next incredible invention or change to society, but in him. The mystery that we're all searching to answer in our lives of how things can be made right, how things can be united together. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, all tell us him. He is the answer to the longing of every human heart. Last thing that I want to talk about that we are given from Paul here in Colossians is a maturity in Christ. Here's how Paul starts to wrap up this little uh, sermon that he's got for the Colossians. He says, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, which was another church in the region, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. See, Paul is kind of wrapping this whole first chapter together here in the the last start, or the first part of chapter two. He's saying, oh, this beautiful vision that I've given you, this Jesus who's over all things, in all things, holding it all together. I want you to see him. I want you to know him. I want you to grow in him. I want you to be set upon him because he knows the Colossian church exists in this well where there's so much noise around them. So much noise, just like it is for us. So many things competing for our attention. So many things competing for our hope and our commitment and our devotion. And what Paul says is, I long. All my life is a work to get you to look at the one who you should really be building your life around. I want you to grow in him. And so he talks about maturity in Christ. Because he longs for this church, he longs for all the churches to grow in Christ, not simply just kind of hear this message one time for it to completely transform them. To grow fully into all that Christ is for us. And so he gives us three criteria for helping us understand maturity in Christ that I want to go through briefly together. The first one is he says that their hearts may be encouraged. Second, that he says that he wants them to be knit together in love. And then lastly, that he wants them to have the riches of full assurance. These three things make up kind of a summary of what Christian maturity is. To grow in Christ, to to mature in Christ, is to experience these three things. First one, that hearts may be encouraged. This is kind of similar, I think, to Paul rejoicing and suffering. It means that when our hearts are encouraged, it's a condition of rejoicing in the right things. Rejoicing in the right things. He wants the churches to rejoice in right things so that they can mature. So Christian maturity proclaims this. 
Christian maturity proclaims God has given me the circumstances I need to grow. When you mature in Christ, that's what your life proclaims. I have the circumstances that I need to grow. Now, think about that in context. Think about the one who's saying, I want your hearts to be encouraged. He's sat in a prison cell. So when I say to you that Christian maturity says, God's given me the circumstances I need to grow, that doesn't mean that those circumstances are going to be what you want them to be. It means that they are what you need to grow. Paul says, I know where God has put me, and it's good for me. I can rejoice in it. I can sing about it. I can praise God. Now, he's not saying the circumstances are great. He's saying despite those circumstances, God's grown me, and he'll grow you too. Right now, I'm sure you have a laundry list of things going on in your life that's vying for your attention and it's steering you in different directions. Just this last week for me and Janae, there was like this long list of silly things that were just, they were pushing on us from every side. Janae's phone had broken. Uh, dishwasher, was, there was something going on with that. There was payments that we were having to make to repair all kinds of different things. And you just, you just kind of get weary of it. And you think, God, I just, can we just get a week of peace where there's no little thing? But you know what God's answer to me is? Do you know what God's answer to all of us is? I've given you the circumstances you need to grow. You might not like them, but because I love you, I've placed you in a position where you can know that I'm enough, where you can know patience, where you can know joy, where you can know rest, even as so many different things around you keep moving. That's what Paul wants. Christian maturity that says, I've got the circumstances I need to grow. Second thing that he says is he wants the church to be knit together in love. Christian maturity proclaims God has given me the family I need to grow. Not just the circumstances, but the family that I need to grow. Remember, already in Colossians 1, Paul has been pretty clear about how he feels about the way that the Colossians treat one another. He says, I've heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. I've heard about how much you love one another, how you serve one another, how you live in community together. And what Paul says is that's Christian maturity. And I want it to keep going. I want you to proclaim to everyone around you that you've got the family that you need. Now, do you think that being a family in Colossae was easy? Do you think that this group of believers that came from all kinds of different backgrounds, Jewish, Gentile, Politically A, politically B, culturally A, culturally B. I mean, it was a melting pot of all kinds of different people. Do you think it was easy for those people to gather together and say, let's do life together? No way. That's always been the story with God's people. Jesus himself picked disciples that were on opposite ends of society. And he said, I want you to be a family. Because I have come to be enough. And so you guys can be knit together in love. Not because you're the same but because I am the same for you both. And so Paul wants this church to be knit together in love. Now, the hard thing for us is that we have to confront that in our day, in our culture, this is maybe one of the things that's hardest for us because in our culture, I think we like to have a private faith. We like to have a faith that's our own, lived away from other people. We're busy, we've got all kinds of things going on, but we can't mature in Christ if we don't want to live in community with God's people. If your faith is strictly private, it's immature. When Christ came, 
He came to unite people together as a family. He came to save people together as a family, to walk beside one another, to love one another. We read in Acts 2 that they were sharing their life with each other, meeting together regularly, giving to any who had need, praising God together, studying God's word together. Christian maturity proclaims, I've got the family that I need, the family that I need. We need to be asking questions and struggling together. We need to be resolving conflicts together, bringing it to the front and saying, yes, we're not the same. We do see things differently, but Christ wants to unite us. We need to be coming and confessing sin together and saying, you know what? I've got broken stuff in my life that I don't want to show anyone, but God has taught me that I need to share it with his family. You know, James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be made to feel really bad about being a bad person. No, he says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That the Lord of glory and the Lord of love can come and show mercy in the community of believers and say, yes, of course there's sin here. That's why I came. You know, there's people sitting next to you right now who have stuff going on in their life that they're desperate to share, but they're terrified because they don't think that anyone else around them is dealing with it. What if the church could confront this idea that we have been knit together in love and that we can bear our souls to one another and not be afraid because Christ is king? That we can expose ourselves to one and say, he's here. We're all broken. We're all in need, but he is here amongst us. He wants them to be knit together in love. No matter what the cost of your schedule, your convenience, your sensibilities and your preferences. It says in Ephesians 4, 11 through, 14, 11 through 15, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God and to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love to one another, we have to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Who are you walking with to go in your maturity? Who are you entrusting your life to because of your faith in Christ? Right now, every one of us can think through our life and think, you know there is someone that I can start meeting with regularly. There is someone I can start sharing my burdens with. I promise you, they're sat in this room with us right now. Lastly, Christian maturity is about full assurance. And this is the most beautiful part and the best place for us to finish. Because Christian maturity proclaims, God has given me himself. So I can grow. Full assurance of the faith. He says later in another letter in Philippians, he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he says in that letter is, I'm sure that he who began a good work of you, in you will bring it to completion. Paul has assurance that because Christ has given himself for the church, the church is going to grow. No matter how many sideways Christians fill it, it will always grow into maturity because Christ has given himself Gospel assurance is the growth is, is the idea that growth doesn't depend on you. It doesn't hang on your shoulders. 
We might ask, how do we get to the place that God wants us to be? How is God going to accomplish this in me? How is he going to deal with this in me? But we can still have assurance that despite all those questions, he will be who he is. And he will do what he promised to do. God wants you to grow in your assurance. Hear me on this. That you are loved. That you are deeply valued by him. Everyone who is in this room today, he knows your name. He's counted the hairs on your head, even mine. He knows us. <laughs> You're welcome. But friends, I know, I know because I've been one of the ones who has sat in a church service and I've sang the songs and I've heard the message and in my heart I have felt, do I have assurance that I'm loved? That he really does forgive me? That I'm important to him at all? When he says that his eye is on the sparrow, is it really on me? And friends, gospel assurance says, yes, it is. Gospel assurance isn't based on your feelings. It isn't when you are feeling like he loves you. It's in at the moment where you feel most unlovable. Gospel assurance says you are wanted by him. You are valued by him. You are seen by him. Full assurance is a promise of God's commitment to you apart from you. If you don't know this assurance today, I want to invite you to take a few moments to pray. If you are here and you are wondering, does this Jesus, does he see me? Does he love me? Lay aside your feelings and your circumstances just for a moment. In the quietness of your heart, say, Lord, I want you to be Christ in me. I want to have that hope of glory. Because friends, coming to Christ isn't a long list of clever things that you have to do. It is simply a confession of your need and an acknowledgement that he has come. We don't do that enough, frankly, in, in church to, to just take a moment to just stop and say, he's come. He loves us. And he's faithful to us. Dear friends, God has a glorious purpose for you and his son. He has a glorious purpose for your life. And it's this, to proclaim the one who has come to bring rejoicing in your suffering, who has come to be the hope of glory for your life, and who has come to give you full assurance that you are loved, that you are forgiven, and that you are seen. Him we proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this chance just together as a church to remind ourselves of the one we proclaim. Lord, I pray that these words would rest in our hearts this week, that we wouldn't run quickly from them, Lord, but that we would stop and remember who you are and what you have done. And God, may our lives be an expo. May this church be an expo to the neighborhood, to the world around it, of who you are and what you have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. It was good. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together, reminding ourselves of this one that we proclaim. Before you go, I just want to let you know if there's any way we can pray for you. If you are in need of that assurance and that encouragement today, please don't hesitate to come. We would love to pray with you. We have a prayer room out back. 
I will be there, other volunteers will be there, and we'd love to pray with you. And then just as a reminder as you go, remember to stop by our kids area to see how you can jump in on building a better summer for kids this uh, season. And if you haven't yet filled out a Spring Connection card, please do that. It would be a wonderful blessing for us. And you might win a $100 gift card to Cooper's Hawk. Now, would you receive today's benediction as we head out of this place? May we go in the name of the one who is enough for us. May our lives proclaim his goodness and his grace that the world may see and know that the hope of glory is Christ in us. It's in his name that we go. Amen.